Well, hello and welcome to the Learning from Legends show with me, Peter Switzer. On this week's show, we meet Matthew Mikhailovich, who is the author of a great book, Life in Half a Second, and soon will list an artificial intelligence company on the ASX, which could become a new, fast-growing tech company. This guy is a genius and is an uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger tragic who he says was a huge inspiration, and then we catch up with Melbourne's Mr Diamonds, Gary Holloway, who tells us how he created one of Australia's most respected diamond businesses, as well as the history of the famous Aussie Argyle Mine. Well, joining us now on the Learning From Legend show with me, Peter Switzer, is Matthew Mikhailovich. I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. I guess if I was in Poland, I'd say Mikhailovich, but maybe I'm wrong. He'll correct me when he comes on. He's the MD and founder of the AI firm Complexica, which soon, um, well, he's heading towards being listed, but this is a very interesting story from a, a very interesting guy who may not be a legend or a household name right now, but within a couple of years, he may well be exactly that. Matthew, thanks for joining us. My absolute pleasure, Peter. Now, was I right? Is it which or which? Mikhailovich uh, or Mikhailovich? It, it depends. After I left Poland when I was six, and I ended up westernizing my last name, and I actually pronounce it Michael Witch. So uh, Michael Witch. Uh, yes. Yeah, so it's so, so, so neither. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was being really, but come on. If I was in Poland, would I be close to Mikhailovich? Is that yes? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, the, the actual Polish pronunciation is Michalewicz. So it's. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah, closer it's, than Michael Witch. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, we got over that one. But uh, your, the name of your company, Complexico, that's really easy to, to pronounce. And um, I, I want to get to that in a minute, but I think people should come to learn who you are. I got to, to know you, I don't know whether I got to know you beforehand or not, but certainly an important part of our relationship was when you published a book called Life in Half a Second, How to Achieve Success Before It's Too Late. Um, and uh, this was a... a, a a best-selling book, and it, it sort of catapulted you onto the speaking circuit, and that's where we certainly bumped uh, into each other uh, on many occasions. Um, but even before then, you had a, a, a very interesting history, which the book actually talks about, uh, and that is you um, ha have always had a fascination with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and, yeah. uh, and also you had a fascination with... IT and tech, and you've listed a company before. So why don't we start with uh, your fascination with um, Big Arnie? Okay, uh, that's an easy one. I, I was seven when my father took me to the movie theater to see the movie Commando, and, uh, and it took my breath away. They steal his daughter, and he kills a 1,000 people to get her back. I thought the guy was incredible. I, you know, I wanted him to be my father. That was uh, yeah. so, so, such a striking role model. But what resonated with me is one person overcoming amazing odds. That's what really uh, struck me in, in his movies. And then as I read books about him, uh, his life is similar to those movies. He overcame incredible odds. You know, a country boy from Austria becomes the world's greatest bodybuilder. Then he becomes the highest paid movie star in the world. He got paid 30 million for Terminator 3. Uh, then he reached the highest political office that a, a non-born uh, American citizen can reach, which is governor of, of California. So you, I can't really think of anyone at all in the globe that has reached the number one position in a variety of different uh, disciplines, sports, mm. movies, politics, and, and so forth. So there's something he does that's different to, to other people. So it became a, a fascination where I really wanted to understand the man behind the movies and what drove his success and what was his philosophies, values, and, and so on. And, and obviously I love his movies, so it, it's, it's an easy guy to like for, for someone like me. But you're, you also, um, became uh, preoccupied with bodybuilding as well yourself, didn't you? Which your yeah. your father, who's an academic scientist, correct me if I'm wrong, um, yeah. wasn't all that impressed with. He wanted you to go to university. No, he was terrified. So the the the, the technology uh, 
part of my background is my father's been an AI scientist since I was six years old. So I grew up as an only child in university settings, listening to lectures on neural networks and the Turing test and uh, machine learning, genetic algorithms and so on, and spent really my uh, um, formative years, primary school, high school, even at the university in a household where advanced technology was the daily vernacular. People came over that were other university professors, PhD students, people in industry. And uh, uh, coming from a family that's uh, um, professors in universities, you can imagine how heartbreaking it would be to hear that their son wants to be a bodybuilder and wants to do bench press and, and barbell curls and, <laughs> and oil up for shows and then and make a and make a career out of it. So. So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, I think, a, a pivotal moment. And I gave it my best crack, Peter. And uh, I found out that I was never going to be as good as Arnold Schwarzenegger when it came to, to bodybuilding and uh, finished the university and moved into technology. Yeah. And, and along the way, you, you uh, were able to list a company on NASDAQ. Just tell us briefly about that company. Yeah. So uh, I've had three technology companies. Complexica is the... Uh, is the, uh, well, I was going to say newest, but it's seven years plus uh, in age. The first one was in the United States. It was a company called New Tech, and it was the first attempt really to uh, commercialize AI long before it was fashionable. Even the term uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence, data science, those weren't popular uh, vernacular terms used at all. It, it was uh, uh, advanced algorithms for complex business problems to create commercial outcomes. Those were the kind of conversations that we had. And we did an enormous amount of projects in defense, in uh, banking, in uh, uh, manufacturing and distribution that set the ground for me to really uh, set the training ground for everything I was going to do later in life when it came to technology and uh, in business. We raised a lot of venture capital. And the second business we created was in Australia. That company uh, ended up being sold. We moved to Australia, created a second business called Solvit Software that became very successful. In 2012, it was the third fastest growing company in Australia before being sold to Schneider. And now I've got Complexica and I'm going to see how far I can take it, go into the public markets. I think I can do it better than, uh, you know, than the acquirers of my previous businesses. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to come back to the book at the end for, yep. an, for an exciting finish for those people who, <laughs> who might not be interested in a, a tech company that has enormous potential. But the, the, the story around this is very, very interesting because Complexica actually does take complex business processes and mm -hmm. tries to basically learn them and help human beings process all the uh, inputs are, that are out there, which would be very, very hard to process. Now, that's the way I've interpreted it, but give us an example of how the, the product that Complexio puts out will help people in business. Yeah, very good question. So the one sentence answer is our software helps companies make better decisions in complex areas. And the world has reached a, a rate of uh, noise, of speed, of complexity, where in business, it's very difficult for anyone to have uh, and analyze all the data and information when making decisions. Which, with the result of that, Peter, is that companies make suboptimal decisions. They do the best that they can in the time that's allocated with the capability of the people that they have. So imagine a software platform, which we've commercialized at Complexica called Decision Cloud, that is able to process all of the data and information that uh, a human might if they had thousands of years, if they had unlimited time Time, and the machine does it in a very short period of time, but not to give a report or to give insights, which I think is very, you know, 1990, 2000, but to actually recommend actions. This is what you should do that will maximize commercial outcomes. And as a concrete example, think about uh, 
uh, alcohol uh, sales in, in uh, outlets like uh, Celebrations or Thirsty Camel or Bottle Mart or, or Sip and Save. Uh, think about all the products that they have in those stores. Think about the promotions that they run. When should you run a promotion? How much off should it be? How will it affect the whole category? Will it create a basket? Is it good for that region? Uh, is it going to be impacted by competitive actions? The number of variables that you would have to consider mm. to come up with an optimized promotional plan and pricing strategy is almost infinite. And yet, uh, in all of those stores, the, the uh, promotions that are being driven come from a complexity application, and it helps those people in these companies like Medcash process all of that information and make optimized decisions in terms of what should be promoted when, what price to get the best result for themselves and the retailers in the marketplace. So we're dealing with problems of complexity and scale where you just can't process all the information. There's a lot of problems like that, pricing, production, supply chain, so on. And I I guess in the past, well, it would be still going on now until everybody uses the products of Complexica, which is something you'd hope would happen one day, is that the key decision maker might have a a team around him who he thinks are really smart and then they put down the really – it's like – there was an example about you know, little rocks and big rocks and all that sort of stuff. And you know, you, you have you go for the big rocks first. You know, the really important things that you think is going to drive sales, and get that on board first. And you say, well, is there anything else we can throw in the mix? And you try to evaluate. And we do as economists when we try to work out how consumption uh, goes up and down. We create what we call a consumption function. And each, each important variable to consumption is identified and then we put a, a marginal uh, response coefficient on those variables, you know, like the value of assets, interest rates, income, all those sort of things. And in the end, we, we, we hope to work out what might happen to consumption, say, if income rises or interest rates fall. So you've done the same kind of thing when it comes to working out real business problems for real businesses and how many businesses have you actually applied your work to yeah over these three companies uh, in 20 years it's been hundreds and hundreds of companies at complexica it's been dozens and dozens and the uh, and you're exactly right we we offer practical ai we're commercially focused outcome focused we want to generate commercial value through better decisions and, uh, and your earlier point that the decision maker has a team of experts around them, that's usually the case. These are very clever people. They're very smart and they're very capable. But unfortunately, they're dealing with problems that uh, if you were to try all the combinations to figure out which one is the best, you'd spend your lifetime trying to figure it out just, just, just for one instance. So we have to take shortcuts. We take last year's plan. We modify it a bit. Uh, In-field in, in sales, when you might have 300 salespeople, you take shortcuts. Which customers should I visit this week or this month? Maybe I should just visit the most valuable ones. So all these shortcuts create uh, sub-optimalities that uh, that businesses end up leaving value on the table. And if we could just have a machine to analyze all those combinations and every day tell people, if you want the best commercial outcomes, these are the best decisions, there's huge value to be unlocked, huge value. Yeah, um, before I ask, the next related question, and that would be around how easy was it to sell the idea that a machine could understand customers and come up with prices mm-hmm. better than experts in the industry? Yeah. I, I just want to ask this question. Um, have you read Ray Dalio's book, Principles? Well, of course, and, yeah. and uh, the only reason I read it is because you recommended it to me. So. <laughs> Uh, well, that's good. That's good. And maybe I recommend it to you because, because in many ways he said the same thing that once upon a time he had the smartest people and they tried to think about all the reasons that a stock market could go up or down or a particular st- a stock price or asset price could go up and down. And he, he realized he just couldn't take in, in, no one could take in all the multiplicity of variables yep. that can get in there. And so, and, and he actually has said that. We now invest using that kind of you know, artificial intelligence that actually helps him comprehend the multiplicity of variables, and that's exactly what you're doing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, uh, convincing people that a machine can do it better than them, I don't think that you're trying to do that. Think of it in a different way. Imagine uh, 70 years ago, uh, not having a calculator, and then you know a decade later or so, a calculator is invented and it costs $20,000, and a few people have it, and they have a competitive advantage. Mm. And the calculator can do equations and arithmetic faster than the humans, right? And then everyone has a calculator, and the, and the uh, playing field is level. But then computers come along. And again, computers cost millions of dollars. They're very expensive. Those that have it have an advantage. And then, and then they get commoditized. And then spreadsheets come along, and people build spreadsheets. And so AI is the latest calculator. So it is the machine that is going to do what the human would have done, like arithmetic by hand, but is going to do it in a fraction of the time that they would have uh, would have taken. So it's a, it, that's the way to think about it, rather than the machine does it better. Well, you know, a calculator is clearly faster than than an average human being in adding numbers, and clearly these AI algorithms are also faster in analyzing all that information and yeah. providing a decision. Does it does it ultimately rely on some human being or a group of human beings to to try and work out the importance of a variable you know i, I talked about a consumption functions as a, a marginal response coefficient now for normal people listening to us what i'm saying is that there's a number and that number yeah. identifies how important that is in your process does someone have to um attribute values of importance to each variable or is the machine the AI machine able to do that because you kind of think this if you're identifying yeah. variables you never even thought of you want them to put work out how important that one is absolutely so both uh, when you configure AI algorithms and you train them uh, on test data and training data and so forth and you uh, uh, tune models and develop models. There's a, a lot of uh, human expertise that goes into it, both from the business and the machine learning scientists. And you test various hypotheses to your point, how much weight should we assign to it? But how important is weather? How important is competitor actions? How important is seasonality and so forth? But once the models have been uh, tuned and tested and are providing the most accurate results, then it's up to the machine to learn and improve itself going forward. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of uh, human experts setting it up at the beginning and then the machine learning and improving its performance going forward. And the goal of the algorithm is to provide the best possible uh, forecast, prediction, recommended decision, and it's measuring it, what it's recommending or forecasting against actuals and trying to improve itself, just just Peter, just like we try to improve ourselves yeah. as humans. So, is the the potential or the the capability of mm -hmm. the machine such that where we might say, I wonder if that bushfire had a had a massive impact on the sales in my supermarket? And so, what we would do is we get a whole lot of data and we'd set it against that time frame of the bushfire and we might go back for the last 10 bushfires to see if there was a, a pattern. Now that's what, as an economist, I would do to try and work out something. Does, does the machine make those sort of decisions to, to actually test out relationships between variables over a longer period of time? No, no, I, I don't think we've gotten there yet with technology, and this is still a function of human experts to do, and this is why you need PhDs and AI companies to do exactly what you're talking about. So a machine is very good once you've defined all the variables, yeah. you adjust, you've set some weightings to it, and then the algorithms run and the weightings are automatically adjusted going forward. But okay, for example, so your, your, your weighting could be a little bit exaggerated, and over time the machine will correct it. Okay. Correct, but so that's, that's a point good around but to your point around a bushfire, Peter, if we hadn't considered bushfires as a variable, then the machine will never be able to consider a bushfire as a variable because it's fundamentally not in the model, not not in the algorithm. So if yeah. bushfires become uh, a factor that should be is providing significant impact on the model, so it needs to be manually added by human experts mm. and initial weighting assigned, and then the model goes. COVID is a very good example. I don't think any model 
for, for these business problems had pandemics and lockdowns and uh, a massive changes in perhaps consumer preferences and behaviors inbuilt into the, to the model. So the models couldn't take it into account. But once you added those variables to it, then going forward, it could. And this requires the machines aren't clever enough, nor the algorithms to do this by themselves today. Okay. Now, everything I've talked about at this point in time, if someone's trying to visualize how these machines work, it seems so much big end of town. Um, and, you know, someone maybe in marketing or strategic planning using this. But there was an example, I think, in a story written in The Australian where it says, for a salesperson, for example, to make the best decision with regard to what to offer a particular client, there's simply yeah. too much data to absorb. So is your product going to be usable at the coalface by someone like a salesperson? It, it is currently already. So yeah. okay. big big companies in Australia that have lots of salespeople, current customers of Complexica like Dulux Group or PFD Food Services or uh, Bunzel, uh, these these are billion dollar plus organizations. They have hundreds of salespeople that are now armed with uh, Complexica applications where an individual salesperson gets individual recommendations on what is the best actions to undertake today, which customers, what conversations even to have, what products to offer, how they should price things. And all of these things, Peter, are uh, processes that would have been very complex and analytical for the individual sales rep to do mm. and now have been automated uh, through the use of these types of algorithms. So uh, it, it, all uh, advanced technology starts at the big end of town. It actually usually starts in military and then goes into banking and there's a whole adoption curve. But eventually it, everyone has it. Look at computers. You know, It started off with military having computers and, and NASA and so forth. And now everyone's got a computer. Everyone's got a computer on their phone. This technology is very, very similar. In the 70s, it was a military type of technology. Then in the 80s, it began pervading uh, uh, industries. Now it's everywhere, but mostly uh, bigger companies. But it's sure enough coming down and down and down. Wait another 10, 20, 30 years, it will be like the calculator, it will be like the spreadsheet. And there'll be something else that'll be exciting that people will be, you know, talking about and saying this is the next great technology. Everything gets commoditized. Yeah. So also you're saying that, you know, the salesperson working for a company like Dulux in Katoomba, might um, um, get a different answer than a salesperson on the Gold Coast in Queensland. And that's the key. I think this era of everyone getting the same offer, the same advice, the same, that's dead. That's, you know, the stuff that's reporting. And, and like I said before, 1990s, 2000, the future is all about uh, individualization, personalization. Talk to me as a sales rep, what I need to do my territory with my customers specifically to me and allow that sales rep to have these personalized conversations and actions with their customers. That's the future. And to come up with these personalized actions is actually a very complex analytical process. You're, you're not only analyzing data all the time, 24-7, but you're actually trying to recommend very specific actions that a salesperson should take to, to, to achieve the best outcome or, or best use of their time. Okay, so when do you think you'll be listing on the Australian Stock Exchange? Uh, our goal is the first half of next year, so about a, a year from today, which is a, a, a great period of time to build uh, necessary relationships with institutional investors and prepare the company for a float and build an independent board and all of the things that you know very well are, are required for that. Uh, my vision, Peter, is I want to be the kind of company in 20 years that becomes uh, a cornerstone of the technology community in Australia, Australia-based, uh, Australian-listed, uh, a, a place where graduates in high school and universities aspire to work in, uh, where they get to work on bleeding edge technologies and, and uh, advanced types of software systems and algorithms. So we have a very long-term view and uh, becoming a public company is an essential step to that. Yeah, well, I don't think you're gonna make it, um, Matthew, because you're not wearing a T-shirt. Like you're wearing a shirt with a collar. Like I've watched Silicon Valley, they yeah. all wear sort of funky T-shirts, nerdy oh, T-shirts. Yeah, you, yeah, you're fit. You you could you could get away with it. You've got plenty of hair as well, so you can really get away with being young. But you got a collared shirt on. 
<laughs> I, I think you're right. And the only explanation that I have is I graduated from the university, Peter, with a corporate finance degree, not a technology <laughs> degree. So it's the banker in me that's <laughs> that's wearing the the shirt. But yeah, I think I think I have to dress down yeah, a bit. Yeah, for you. And uh, and and I, I most people around the country probably don't like saying anything nice about Adelaide. I think people unfairly pick on Adelaide, but Adelaide is actually a great city. To be yeah. a tech company, aren't there? There's a lot of really smart tech businesses that have come out of um, Adelaide. Yeah, it, it's an incredibly uh, uh, beautiful place to live. It's uh, you know you've got the wineries, the hills, amazing beaches. Uh, the couch culture is fantastic. Food and wine, and and now it's got a great technology presence mm. as well. The, the people that we employ and that live here are enormously dedicated to the state, to the city. It's kind of like Microsoft created their head office in Seattle. You know, there was nothing in Seattle, but they wanted people that worked there to really be committed, not that they're going to be poached by the other companies in Silicon Valley and, mm. and so on. So we didn't do that deliberately. We just love living here. But I think it's a it's a fantastic place to headquarter a technology company. And it's uh, uh, in today's world, you could really be based anywhere in terms of people and offices and be successful. It's it's not like uh, 50 years ago or, or even 30 years ago. So we're big advocates of the state and we know we can be successful by staying headquartered here. Yeah, and I, I have heard that when you are trying to get people to come to South Australia or Adelaide um, from the more expensive cities like Sydney and Melbourne, there's a there's quite an appeal, like in terms of what you can buy, in terms of real estate and all that sort of stuff. That can be a big appeal factor nowadays. Yeah, and we've got much better wine as well, which is extremely <laughs> important for a lot of people. Yeah, no sulfur in your wine. Yeah, no. I think you guys created that that rumor. But anyway, before we ramp up, um, I, I'd just like you to sum up in a nutshell those five steps that you um, thought was critically important success in that book of yours life in half a second yeah uh, i researched for years uh, as an entrepreneur what drives success and it came to really five uh, core uh, themes and the first theme was having a goal on, on what you do so since the beginning of complexica we had a goal of being a public company and, and seeing how far we could push it globally and, uh, and and creating something that australia would be proud of the second step is desire which uh, is the energy required to achieve the goal. So people that have incredible desire put in incredible energy uh, and effort into achieving the goal, and they have a much better chance of success. So we, we want it, we almost, that's our life's mission to do this, our life's calling. So the desire is very high and a lot of effort is uh, put in. Uh, third, you have to have belief. Uh, you have to believe you can do it. And uh, having been through these processes before and having run successful companies that have grown and been sold and and, uh, and in, in Australia and in the US, we know we can do it. It's not even belief. We know we can do it and we know what's required. Four is you have to have the knowledge to do it. So if you want to float a company, gosh, there's so many things, whether it's uh, um, the uh, capital structure of a business, whether it's uh, the, uh, constitutions, whether it's independent boards, audits, uh, having brokers, analysts, et cetera. It's an, an entire process that has to be undertaken to do a, a float investment bankers and whatnot. But once you know what all of that is, that's your goal. You know you can do it. You believe in yourself and you have the desire. Then the last final step, Peter, is just to do it, which is action. And action is uh, systematic. It's not one big jump. It's daily actions, small steps that over long periods of time amount to significant outcomes. Every day you've got, it's like becoming a bodybuilder. Every day you got to go into the gym and you've got to just do a little bit more than you did the, the previous session. And if you do that over five or seven years, you have a physique that's, you know, the top of your genetic potential. Business is the same. Every day you've got to be stepping towards the goal with energy, with effort, with enthusiasm. Everything in life in success comes down to these five things. Yeah. I'm sure I've shared with you that favorite quote of mine from Chris Everett when she said, um, there were times when deep down I wanted to win so badly I could actually will it to happen. I think most of yeah. my career was based on desire. And you're absolutely yeah. right. It's a great. Yeah, and I, I must admit, I I've used it for quite some time, and uh, I, I shared this with our audience last week. But I'll just share it with you one more time. That um, I've used that quote for a long time in my speeches and in my my writings, and um, 
But my producer in the old days, Andrew Brown, he just couldn't find where she actually said it. And so I saw, I, I must have got somewhere in, in Google. I wouldn't have made it up, but you know, maybe, maybe I could have. Anyway, last, or two years ago, two years ago, I was flying to the Australian Open. I was in row one on Virgin flying to Melbourne and seeing behind me in row two was Chris Everett. So I turned around to introduce myself, told her on a TV show. That gave me a bit of a reason to interfere in her life. I asked her, did she say it? And as I uh, re-said the quote, her, her, her uh, smile got bigger and bigger. At the end, she said, yep, I said it. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Great. Not only a great quote, Peter, but a great story to go with it. Yeah, for sure. So, Matthew, uh, I'm not going to try pronouncing your surname anymore. You're just going to be Matthew M. for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> it's a great story. I look forward to seeing the next stage of your success. If if the name Michael M. doesn't become a legend, I think Complexico will. Thanks for joining us in the program. Thank you, Peter. Well, it's time for a quick ad, so I shouldn't say this is time for a quick ad, but if you need any help in building your wealth, think about contacting us at Switzer Advisory. Just go to switzeradvisory.com.au and we'll do our best to help you build your wealth. Well, joining me now is a legend of the diamond industry. Individuals out there listening might not have heard of Gary Holloway and Gary Holloway Diamonds, but the um, the good burgers of Melbourne well and truly know Gary Holloway and his fantastic business. Gary, thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure, Peter. Uh, Gary, how long have you been in the diamond game and how did you end up becoming an expert in diamonds? Well... I started my business in 1976, so that's 44 years. Um, and uh, I studied gemology. I was a geologist originally, studied gemology, then did the diamond course and got really interested in diamonds and especially diamond cutting. And that's my forte. That's what I'm known for all around the world. Um, I have software online that grades around about uh, $10 million to $20 million worth of diamonds each week. Um, they pay me a pittance for that service, but that's uh, that's okay because it does something to improve the quality of diamond, and that's something that I'm passionate about. How important is the actual diamond in the rough or the rock compared to the way it's cut? Well, if you were laying on the beach and there were some pebbles lying around and you were looking at them, you probably you probably would not be able to pick the diamonds from the bits of quartz, make up most beach sand. Right. Okay. So, okay. and because I'm an ignoramus, I don't understand the analogy. What's, what's the analogy? The analogy is that until you cut them, mm. they, they don't sparkle. Yeah. Just sit there. They just sit there like little pebbles. Okay. Because that's what they look like. Yeah. So, so yeah. In, the, in the rough, they're rough. They're rough. They're very rough. <laughs> <laughs> They're rough as you and me, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're a lot less rougher than me, Gary. Now, right. <laughs> now, all right, people listen to this say, well, okay, it's all very well you saying that, you know, you got into the diamond business and you're a geologist. I, don't, I, I could be wrong. I don't think you came from a, a very wealthy family. Do, do you have to be wealthy to start up a diamond business or do you have to borrow a lot of money or do you have to have a backer? How did you get into the diamond game? Because the, 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 the raw material, the stock you put, ain't cheap. It's not. Um, I started out with $5,000, um, rented a shop. We lived above the shop. We had two kids um, living above those shops, although we gradually uh, rented more shops next door. And um, I made around about one mile of handmade chain for a wholesaler each year mm. for the three years. Um, I had calluses and blisters on my hands from this hand-making, squashing links with pliers, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, uh, which, interestingly, we've decided, and I've got some gold sitting on the stairs at work, um, I'm going to I'm going to start making them again, mm. um, and what I plan to do is is to get some kids in for work experience um, to do some of the hard yards, yeah. um, get them in on the weekend or uh, in the afternoon after school, whatever. Yeah. 
I tell you what, you may well think about um, even thinking about uh, employing some older people because I know Adam Ferrier of Thinkabell, he's actually giving work experience to over 50s, 50-year-olds because he says they're always disadvantaged and always ignored when it comes to work experience and there are a lot of 50-year-olds who'd like to retrain and do stuff like that. Well, I've, been, I've got uh, a son-in-law who's, who's a, um, a builder mm. and he's just employed a mature-age apprentice. Mm. And I've heard of quite a few of those yeah. sort of situations. Yeah. yeah, it's a good, people, it's a good sign. He yeah. was working in the finance industry, for God's sake. Yeah, well, you know, I think the building industry is probably a lot easier than the finance industry, <laughs> and we know how bad the building industry can be. Uh, Gary, it's all very well to start a business, but how did you actually get it to be one of the, the most significant diamonds business in uh, Melbourne? You know, you're in, as say, Canterbury and Brighton. Brighton is the grand central of of wealth. In uh, Melbourne, I guess t- people in Turak might disagree, but a lot of people in Turak, Turak end up in, in Brighton. How, how did you grow your business? What was your competitive advantage that gave you this uh, great growth? Well, it was it was a gradual learning, um, and <clears throat> you know the first the first year, most or the first three years, most of my income came from very hard yards making jewellery for a wholesaler. And so each month I would buy about a kilo of gold and uh, about 100 grams of that gold would end up in the shop. So it was very, very hard yards. And I wouldn't say that I would have made more money um, without the shop in the first five years probably just doing that. But, of course, building up the retail business um, and, you know, I was in a pretty good location. Canterbury's not not exactly a slum either. No. And then when I did the diamond course, I realised that, that there was this huge opening, this huge opportunity, because most diamonds um, back then were very badly cut um, and I could identify and pick out the really, really well-cut diamonds with a thing that I invented called the ideal scope, which I kept a secret for, for 15 years. Um, I now sell them online. I sell them globally. Mm. Um, you know, today I think we've sold about 10, um, <clears throat> just the orders that are coming through all the time online. Um, so it's it's just it's just those hard yards that you have to do, you know. Mm. I guess it's easier if you start some sort of a, a fintech um, online business these days than, than it was for us what we were doing. But, um, yeah, it was hard yards for a long time. Do you think you, you actually came up with some quite significant marketing ideas that, that grew the name of the business or was it more organic that people were so, so in love with what you did, they talked about you, the family came, the friends came and you grew that way or both? Um, a bit of both. Mostly the marketing knowledge didn't come until about uh, the late 90s. Um, <clears throat> so I was well and truly into the business by word of mouth before then. Um you know, the word of mouth, when your diamonds are cut better than other people's diamonds, that means they sparkle more. Mm. And I hear this, these stories all the time from, from ladies. You know, I was sitting having, uh, having a cup of coffee or a glass of wine with some friends and my friend said, oh, my God, your diamonds are going berserk, you know, and they would put their diamonds side by side and, and it was bleedingly obvious that my diamonds sparkle more. Yeah. Okay, so that so so in, in a sense that this discovery of how to cut diamonds better became yes. like a, an instant marketing um, process as well. They sell themselves. Mm. Well, yeah. I, I got to know you in the nineties, and um, and then, you know, and I, I I gave you publicity because you you came up with really interesting stories. And one of the things you taught me about, and I think you eventually ended up on my Sky Business TV program, was this big issue around the pink diamond. And yes. and most normal people have no ideas between white or pink. The pink diamond is is the pink diamond the the best of the best. Well, you could argue that blue diamonds are as expensive as pink diamonds. Um, The Argyle mine in Western Australia produces some blue diamonds too, but to me they're nowhere near as beautiful as the pinks. And the the most expensive diamonds, of course, are red diamonds, which are very, very deep pink. Are they the blood diamonds? There was a 
uh, um, uh, African film based on? Yeah, no, that's uh, well, that diamond was pale pink. Mm. Um, it wasn't anywhere near the shade of colour of the beauty of the Argyle pink diamonds. The Argyle mine's just closed. Um, so Argyle pink diamonds have, um, for 35 years, they've really been knees of, of pink diamonds around the world. And the most popular are the baby pink colours. Um, just, just fairy floss, beautiful, intense, um, vibrant pink coloured. And, of course, everybody, well, ladies especially, um, just love pink. Mm. What do they sell for? What's the most expensive pink diamond that's ever been sold? Well, the most expensive pink is not an Australian because, um, foolishly, Rio Tinto um, crushed the diamonds to about 12 millimetres. Um, so there's no really big pink diamonds from Argyle. Um, these days um, they X-ray the rocks before they crush them and, uh, of course, diamonds um, are invisible to X-ray. So if they find a rock that's got a big cavity in it, um, they know that there's potentially a big diamond in it. Um, I'll have never done that. Um, they have destroyed billions and billions of dollars worth of diamonds. So, so the biggest, most valuable ones are still coming out of Africa. Mm. So um, you've mentioned Argyle a couple of times. A lot of people know the name. Just give us some history because a, a book uh, is being released um, Friday yeah. week about the Argyle mine. A, where is it? B, how significant is the Argyle mine in the history of diamonds? Well, it's a wonderful story. <clears throat> the book is called Argyle, the Impossible Diamond Mine. And <clears throat> it was written by a fellow called Stuart Kells. It was published yesterday, um, which was Tuesday. Um, and the book launch is actually going to be in my Canterbury store. Um, the fellow that started the search for Argyle, Ewan Tyler, AO, um, Ewan is referred to as the father of diamonds in Australia. Um, he discovered the Argyle mine. Just before then, he discovered the Ellendale mine, which was famous for yellow diamonds. Tiffany had exclusive dibs on the best of the yellow diamonds uh, from Ellendale for several years, and more recently, the Merlin diamond mine in the 90s. So <clears throat> Ewan and another fellow who was on the board, Bill Leslie, um, are both going to be present. Um, I bought Bill Leslie's diamond um, from him, the first pink diamond that was ever mined in Argyle. Now, Argyle, to answer your question, people may know that there is Lake Argyle near Kununurra in the west in the northwest of Australia. The Argyle mine is named after the lake, which has been set up as a dam and is a huge agricultural area in that area. Um, <clears throat> it's roughly halfway between Darwin and Broome. Uh, that might help people understand mm -hmm. what it is. It's seriously outback. Um, it's almost at the northern end of the Bungle Bungles. If anybody has ever been to the Bungle Bungles or flown over them, the, mo the cutest little mountains that you've ever seen um, with horizontal red and white stripes all the way through them. Okay. Haven't been there, put it on your bucket list. Is it WA or, or Northern Territory? Uh, it's WA, but it's pretty close to the border. Mm. You, okay. can actually, okay. you can actually get there on back roads okay. in the border. Okay. Um, how significant is Argyle as a mine, you know, in terms of its international um, uh, achievements? And, and you mentioned Rio. Did Rio Tinto eventually buy the Argyle mine? So <clears throat> the mine was discovered by a company called Ashton, um, Ashton Mining, and Ashton Mining um, sold 60% of the rights to the mine to CRA, Consec Rio Tinto, mm. um, were way back then, who later on became Rio Tinto. And um, so Rio actually operated the mine um, with Argyle, uh, sorry, with Ashton as, as junior partners. Um, the Ashton head office was here. 
um, Rio Tinto's head office way back then was here. And I got to know all of these people very, very well. In fact, um, I was kind of like the court jeweller for Ashton. Right. Another interesting side story, um, uh, De Beers put in a bid for Ashton um, after they made a complete mess of, of the relationship that they had with Rio Tinto and the Argyle Mine. They, um, Rio Tinto eventually marketed all of the diamonds directly themselves. Initially, most of the diamonds were being marketed by De Beers when De Beers had that monopoly of 80% of the world's diamonds. Mm. Um, De Beers thought that they could, um, <clears throat> that they could uh, basically hobnail Rio into being forced to sell to them. And so they, uh, in 1996, the deal fell through. And when that deal fell through, um, uh, De Beers said, well, we will dump all of the diamonds that are going to compete with you, um, diamonds from Russia, diamonds from other places. We're going to dump them on the market and send you broke. Well, you know, De Beers, was, De Beers almost went broke over that and they actually had to privatise because they ended up with so many diamonds in their safe that their, their value as a public company was less than the value of what they had in the safe and all the rest of the stories uh, most people know about. So Argyle is, was a significant milestone in De Beers' history. Absolutely. Not, not one that they're very proud of. Mm. But Argyle mined the most diamonds. Um, Argyle probably produced in 35 years half of all of the diamonds that have been mined all around the world ever. Mm. But they were also the cheapest diamonds because most of them are light brown straw colour, which we called champagne, until the French said, you can't call it champagne. But strangely, the deeper coloured ones uh, we call cognac, and the cognac people thought it was lovely to be associated with diamonds. So uh, the French can be quite strange. Yeah. It's a very, very interesting history, the, the diamond uh, industry. Tell me, tell me this, um, what, what's happened to the Argyle mine? Is it still being mined or is it closed or, or what? So <clears throat> originally it was an open cut. And when that open cut got too deep, um, they decided to go underground. So about, about 12 years ago, they started um, a spiral down and then they mined for the last five or six years, they mined from the bottom up. So they, uh, they basically let the Kimberlite pipe, well, it's actually Lamprolite, but they basically let the pipe drop down. Um, and of course, they always had to stop during the wet season because that is a very, very wet monsoonal area. Um, and even, even way down there, the water was a problem. Um, so they were mining about a kilometre beneath the Earth's surface. Now, they decided that it wasn't viable to continue to go down to another level, um, <clears throat> which is not to say that some other junior mining company won't actually take it on because these days what they're doing um, is they're, they're actually processing the ore underground and they'll be able to do that X-ray um, sorting. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, uh, if Rio Tinto don't sell it for $10, $50 million to some junior miner mm. who will perhaps also take over the responsibility for rehabilitation. Mm. Um, Gary, um, during the coronavirus, you uh, went public. You're a bit ashamed that a lot of retailers actually closed up shop. What was the story there? Well, <clears throat> when we had our first lockdown in Victoria, first of many, um, when we had our first lockdown, um, I went through all the legislation and all the rules and, and read everything and while they were telling people you can only go out to buy food and, and medical appointments and so on, they never actually closed retail shops in those first lockdowns. Mm. Um, so we were still allowed to be open. Um, we were allowed to have a small number of people in the, in the shop. We had to have, you know, four square metres, all that sort of stuff. And so... What happened? So, for example, in our Brighton um, shopping strip, which is a really vibrant shopping strip, 
almost all of the stores were closed. So um, we, we got out some old billboards, um, turned them around the other way, stuck them on the, with gaffer tape, stuck them on the front of the, the shops and painted in red paint, um, we are open and, and put some signs up in the window with what the legislation was, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it wasn't legislation, what the rules were. Um, and before you know it, three quarters of the shops in Brighton um, were open the next week. Um, okay. <laughs> so we we got the shopping centre going again. We yeah. got it started again. And, of course, our Canterbury Road store, um, you know, a quarter of Melbourne drives past that shop every day. So um, all of a sudden we were helping people celebrate their birthdays and anniversaries. And um, so... Of course, we weren't allowed to have all of the staff on the premises, and we didn't. Um, we had to have two people in each shop. Um, so there are eight people work in the Canterbury store. So we we had the girls working from home. We set them up with computers, and they were calling customers um, saying, you know, do you realise, Peter, that you've got an anniversary coming up? And I've got a few ideas for you. I can see that Mary's got some, uh, or Maureen in your case, has got a really nice pair of diamond earrings. We've got a matching pendant. Um, it's this much. Would you be interested? Um, if you like, I can drop it into you on the way home from work or I can get, um, we'll make a video of it for you. They learned to make the most amazing videos. Mm. And, um, you know, at the same time, we started putting things up on Facebook Um we, we previously had 1,800 Facebook followers. We ended up with 10,000 by the end of the year. Mm. So my darling Vera, my partner, um, she really got stuck into that. And um, so she knows she's a mathematician by, by uh, university education. So she, she was all over the numbers, all over the, the back end of Facebook, which is if you've ever been there, it's it's a minefield. It's incredibly complicated. And so by the end of August, we actually were 3% up on the previous year to year. Mm. So in a sense, the threat became a, a good reason to think outside the square and you ob- obviously came up with innovations you wouldn't have thought of or been pushed to mm. without the coronavirus. So we've employed a serious six-figure marketing manager we would never have done that um, because we realised the the power of online marketing. Mm. We are not an online business. We don't sell online. But the power to get people through the door, to contact people, to, to promote yourself and so on. So we have learned heaps and heaps and heaps and there is so much more to do. I haven't worked so hard in, in my... For the, the previous 10 years, worked as hard as I have been now. Gary, it's great talking to you, mate. I look forward to hopefully getting to that launch Friday week. And uh, you got me very interested in the history of the Argyle Mind and, of course, Gary Holloway Diamonds. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. That's the show. Thanks for joining us. If you ever want to know more about us, you can go to switzer.com.au or switzeradvisory.com.au or switzerreport.com.au. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.